1: And I'm Eliana
0: Johnson. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media.
1: Chris, what's the latest? How are you?
0: Uh, I am well. This is uh, a very busy week, and we've had the uh, AEI annual dinner and all kind of stuff around here. How was that dinner? It was excellent. Uh, Marianne Glendon, Ambassador Glendon, was, uh, was wonderful and great and smart and insightful and lovely, and it was also nice. To see all my fellow nerds in tuxedos, it was it was it was very lovely, and it's great to see. And it's not just AEI, but in spite of what our political leaders talk about all the time, America is coming back to itself. Life you can feel. Uh, Halloween felt that way too. That life started to assert itself again. Uh, what what is the what's the the meme on nature is healing? You can you can feel people coming back to themselves. And I, I think the Virginia election is kind of part of that, too. But just the whole thing that the rhythms of life are restoring themselves, and that makes me happy. Except
1: for AEI, I did, like, a truncated dinner, a mini dinner. It was dinner. a
0: small dinner. It was not the giant... Mini din. But I, I will say a more intimate room, is, and I've I've had the experience of when you're talking to a, a hundreds and hundreds and hundreds or a thousand or, or more people, it's hard to hold the room and it's hard to feel like you're having a conversation. So that was nice, too.
1: Well, I did not attend the dinner because... I am too pregnant to put on dress. <laughs> So that was actually what I said.
0: Rocked it though. If you had No, not,
1: you I would not have. It. Let's do our front page. These are the stories that we thought were most important this week. First one, I mean obvious Obviously. media coverage of the McAuliffe Yunkin Virginia governor's race.
0: And New Jersey. And Pennsylvania and Minneapolis and the 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 amount of coverage that the off off year election got this year. And I I may my mind may be playing tricks on me, but I feel like in comparison to even 2009. No,
1: 2009 was huge.
0: No, no. But I'm saying even in comparison to 2009, which was huge, this seemed like more. Am am I misremembering it?
1: I think you're misremembering. That was big. Christie getting elected. Bob McDonald. That was, yeah, RIP. So here is the mainstream media. We did a little montage of the mainstream media coverage of what turned out to be the McAuliffe defeat, the Yunkin victory in Virginia. Let's play that. I think that the the real ominous thing is that critical race theory, which isn't real— turned the suburbs 15 points to the trump insurrection endorsed republican what do democrats do about that
0: yeah i think we also see the enduring power of the culture wars and the republicans are better at playing this game because it's essentially white identity politics that works for republicans let's be clear some of it was dog whistle yeah right some of it was uh, ra- dog whistle racism. A thousand percent. But, but for a lot of voters, that's not what it was. It was more this anxiety when it comes to schooling. I think the
1: thing I find most interesting about it, first of all, it's so interesting that the media is like exactly parroting the McAuliffe line, which his line that didn't work on the campaign trail was critical race theory is a racist dog whistle or it's not being taught in schools. It's not real. And. The implication, and then the media like parrots that perfectly. And then the implication being that these suburban women who swung from Biden to Yunkin, Biden in 2020, 15-point swing, that they're a bunch of ignorant boobs.
0: Or bigots.
1: Or bigots. Yeah, one or the other. uh, Is incredible to me. And the other thing that's incredible is like I, I think the media's failure to grapple with the fact that the, the frustrations about kids being at home and the frustration about school curricula are not two separate things. Parents got a real view of what their kids are learning and how their kids are learning. And, you know, Ross Douthat made this point in his New York Times column. But yes, well, it's true, of course, that technical critical race theory isn't being yep. taught. The trickle down essence of it is permeating public schools and other institutions. And I, I just find it amazing, like, this insistence that this thing doesn't exist. I, I
0: listened to NPR today, and they were talking about it in, in, a, in a in a good interview with the spokesman for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and had to stop and say, now, critical race theory is not da-da-da, and, and there's this little thing. This is a phrase, and I think we could say the same thing about the discussion about inflation. There is a way that it is understood in academic circles or among economists or among people who deal in soci- sociological definitions of racism and then there's the way it's generally understood the way people generally understand inflation is what stuff costs more that's what that's how that's how normal people right, exactly. understand inflation is that prices are going up not well actually that's the, if you take out fuel prices the consumer price index basket of goods it's like no what they mean is gas is high that's what they mean is gas is high and when people say critical race theory what they mean is anti-racism as part of the school curriculum and bringing in the instruction in anti-racism. By the way, I've started John McWhorter's uh, new book on the what he calls the elect and the cult of wokishness, uh, and we'll talk more about this later when we get to our obsessions, but the inability for reporters and producers and editors to understand that this functions in two different ways and that I
1: think they understand I think it, that it's totally political it's impossible it's it's a- I think they understand. They understand that, like, the objection is to white children being taught, you bear some sort of, you know, Original responsibility sin, right. for what what your ancestors did in the past. But they say, well, that's just teaching our history. They just agree with it and think that's what should be taught.
0: I, I think that I think there is a truth in that, of course, with some folks. Uh, but I also think that there is a this is part of where the fact checking itis overtakes. Yeah. Overtakes journalism, where it your job is not to correct misinformation in the sense of, well, before we use this term, let's stop everything and define it. Our job as journalists is to be understood, is to make ourselves understood. They're
1: not even defining it. They're just saying this thing that you your you mother saw in your third grader's class, it doesn't exist. And it reminded me of... The exact the inflation parallel is good, where, like the Biden administration is saying, well, this year's Fourth of July cookout is sixteen cents cheaper. But people's experiences and what they're seeing with their own eyes are very different. And I think like the takeaway for Democrats and the media, you know, same, same old, like same well, one, but well, is like that this does not work?
0: one one of the I think one of the very good points you just made, the Virginia election, and by the way, <laughs> the New Jersey election was actually worse for Democrats. The results in New Jersey, Even though Phil Murphy hung on to win, the swing was larger in New Jersey, and the places where Democrats underperformed in New Jersey were worse, right? If I'm uh, Josh Gottheimer, if I'm a Democrat who's in New Jersey, I am looking at these results with and 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 all of that stuff. It's true
1: because in Virginia, it was like gains among the white working class. You know, Yunkin outperformed Trump in those areas more. So, and the suburban swing, but I the the
0: the just just for just for a frame of reference, the electorate in Virginia in 2017 was 62. 67% white, which is very unusual for an off-off-year election. Uh, this year it returned to 73 70- Five percent white or something like that. I forget what the exit poll numbers say. But the white voters who stayed home because they did not want to support Republicans at a time when Donald Trump was a, a giant orange Tyrannosaurus Rex smashing into everything, and they did not want to add their vote to that, those folks came back because Glenn Youngkin offered a normal way to be a Republican again. But I think the...
1: Mitt Romney making his come, you know, more call, politically I, talented Mitt Romney. I call him his uh, business
0: casual Mitt Romney. He is just like the, the vest is the vest is where it's at. If Rick Santorum had only worn a zip up vest as opposed to a sweater vest, everything could have been different.
1: So we got the mainstream media. But, Chris, you had thoughts on Fox's coverage of this. Well, which was also interesting.
0: Election night in general was interesting. So this is the first time in more than 10 years that I spent an election night watching instead of making. And it was the calls were late. I I don't want to be I'm not saying that I have any special.
1: They were late. And Fox was the last among the cable networks to call the race, which I was also at Fox during. Let's see, I was there 2009 Mm -hmm. and 2011. Yeah. uh, During off year elections. And it was really exciting. Actually, the best night ever that I was at Fox was the Scott Brown victory in Scott 2010. Brown. Yes. yes. Um, but I just recall those being really big, exciting nights because it was the Obama era and Republicans win- won. Well,
0: there's, there's a question that we have to ask. Do networks want to call races? Calling the, calling the uh, election, as I learned, can be very unpopular with your viewers if you go the other way. And it stops the drama. Right.
1: Yeah. Why wouldn't they just say we're going with the AP? We're all going to use. And, AP.
0: and I, I really wonder if that this, this cool thing that I got to do for the decade of my career might be really going by the wayside because the the market pressures on networks do not encourage fast resolution. If if you were being sleazy, what you would say is, well, keep it open as long as possible. Keep people watching. We don't want a resolution. We want to keep the, the focus going. Now, when you're on a decision desk, you have to be, you have to keep the Chinese wall up. We can't think about that. We have to make the calls when they're ripe and we can't.
1: I think there's also, the, okay, so the, yes, there's the audience incentive, which I understand. There's also the reportorial incentive to be first. And that's that brings I, with I... it some audience, you know? Well,
0: I, you know, uh... people
1: want to watch, like we we've called it,
0: a long time ago, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, 20 years ago, Stephen Brill said that... Uh, Man,
1: that's a name I haven't heard in a long time.
0: Said that... But who is he, Teller? Stephen Brill was uh, it, 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 a smart media critic. He had a magazine called Brill's Content that was right, unfortunately, unfortunately timed to the end of <laughs> the end of print journalism. So the timing was off, but it was a very smart magazine, and he was a great media critic. But anyway his his point was at the beginning of the internet era and this was before social media really arrived on the scene was that breaking news and I'm the word we're not going to need an e on this one but I would just cover your ears that breaking news is masturbation because in the digital modern era once somebody has it Everybody has it. It's not like the old days where it's like, oh my gosh, can we match the times on this one? When it's I
1: was right. at Fox, there was a joke because I worked for Sean Hannity and Greta Van Susteren at the time followed us and every night Greta started with a breaking news alert. Breaking it was news. like something that was totally not breaking. It was very
0: funny. Well, every show on Fox has... You can actually find, uh, there's on a, a YouTube a clip of Megyn Kelly and I breaking into hysterics one day when they initiated the new Fox News breaking news alert and it sounds like... A SR-71 Blackbird has flown (laughs) over your house. Sonic booms everywhere. Breaking news. So, yes, breaking. But breaking news, which used to be a way to chase audience, isn't a way to chase audience anymore because everybody has it immediately. Oh, we were the first ones to have this. Well, good for you. Now we all have it and see you later.
1: Uh, I want to make one more comment about, well, I think that, the mainstream coverage of the race versus the results of the race, like it, for once, the conventional wisdom was kind of spot on, which was that McAuliffe was in trouble, uh, etc. But the, this Axios analysis of why Yunkin was successful, which came out before, uh, it was the morning of or the morning before the race, cracked me up. So this is this is their explanation in their morning newsletter of why why Yunkin was successful. GOP strategists tell us Yunkin has shown five ways to navigate, like, the squeeze between Trump and regular Republicans. The first was embrace Trump tactics, and the Trump tactic that they point to was Yunkin and his team were ruthless in torturing Democrat Terry McAuliffe with the words he most regrets. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Yeah, torturing your opponent with a, like, career-ending yeah. gaffe yeah. is yeah. something— Nobody thought of before Donald. No one Trump. had
0: ever. No one had ever done that.
1: It's before. it's amazing.
0: Certainly the, the John Kerry's. I actually voted for the eighty-seven billion dollars yeah. before. I know the Bush campaign was like, well, we can't use it. That would be unfair. that would be
1: Trumpian. <laughs> it, would be, it would be unfair.
0: <laughs> so we're not going to do that. I would say one more thing. Well, and by the way, on Trump stuff, do you know who successfully dealt with Donald Trump in the race? Donald Trump. If Donald totally. Trump would have wanted to, he could have ruined Glenn Youngkin's chances to be governor. You know,
1: I would like to read a story about that. How did that go down?
0: Why did why uh, didn't he hurt it, himself? A painful. I'm sure it was painful on some level for Trump to have to recognize that his presence would be destructive to Youngkin's chances. But he could have t- never
1: stopped him before. Never.
0: Well, it certainly didn't stop him, and he he cost Donald Trump cost Republicans the U.S. Senate by going down and as I as I said to John Podoretz and company uh, this morning for the commentary podcast went down and left streaks of orange toner or orange bronzer all over the state of Georgia and and cost Republicans the Senate he could have in a weekend ruined Glenn Youngkin's chances to be the governor of virginia and he chose not to and a lot of this coverage overlooks the fact that trump is made a strategic choice here to stay away and that is more significant than whatever glenn, glenn youngkin did
1: and republicans thank him
0: and, and republicans thank him but now we get to see what is net what you know what will the donald what will the donald do now and the last thing i want to say about coverage i uh, just wanted to mention I watched on election night. I flipped around to see what was going on as I was having my FOMO, I was, ha- or I was having my actual Mo. I was missing out on being part of the coverage and all that stuff. And I watched, and did it- Did you miss it? I did. Oh my gosh, I missed it. T- I, th- I thought I wouldn't care, but I really missed it a lot. Election nights are so fun. And being able to forecast results and having all the whiz-bang computers there and doing the hits and everything is a lot of fun. But I watched something, and while on a night that- was going to be really good for Republicans and that there were auguries that it was going to be a good night for Republicans, Fox did not do special programming. They did the regular. And this is something that changed over the time that I was at Fox. Once upon a time, on election night, you'd get blowout special coverage. You'd have Brett Baier, Megyn Kelly, Martha special McCallum. Special graphics. Special graphics, special panels in place for the evening. And what happened over time was that the anchors would not Seed, yeah, they got pissed. They would not seed their slots, and they said, "Well, here's what we're gonna do: we'll just instead of having the first step was we'll have the anchors do hits in their right, in, right, in their hour, and then it switched to actually we'll have special coverage hits within the. Hour. You
1: know what's amazing to me is if somebody told me, like, you know, this other person is gonna come do your job for the night and you have the day off, I'd be so freaking happy. But
0: but there's a secret, and the secret is how the ratings get coded. So if it's special coverage, your show does not get credit for the sky high ratings. So because the inmates you lose out from you having, you lose out. Okay, um, for your from quarterly not having average. Like enough of a. So what you want if you're Sean Do Hannity, you
1: lose out if everything's just average or it's just.
0: So if you're Sean Hannity or you're Tucker Carlson, if you have a great night of viewership, so they know people are going to be tuning in for election results. Right. But if it's special programming. That night does not count into their average that makes up how much money you can charge, uh, how, how they set the rates for advertisers. So over time, the anchors with the agreement of the network were like, we're not going to do this anymore. So while the other networks on a night that Republicans were going to really be tuning in and were really excited, Fox did not have that kind of special coverage. Bill Hemmer did a very admirable job at the big board, as always. Uh, the guy knows his stuff. But it was just interesting to watch the inversion, even when it would have been better for overall viewership to really blow it out, the inversion to satisfy the egos of the anchors and the bottom line.
1: Speaking of Fox and Tucker, he had a much anticipated special Mm -hmm. air this week, and we are going to play a clip of that. It is about January 6. Let's roll that tape.
0: Most Americans probably assume the chaos of January 6 was a result of intelligence failures or of simple government incompetence. But direct incitement by federal agents, the intentional entrapment of American citizens. No decent person wants to believe that. But increasingly, there's evidence it is true.
1: So, Chris, that clip was... The kicker of the first episode. I have not actually watched the second one yet, but that was like the cliffhanger going into the second episode.
0: And we, and we talked about this last week after we saw the trailer. What I think is interesting is the degree to which and Vanity Fair reports this out. Also, David Folkenflik at NPR looked into this and how the network is treating this. And it's like, well, it's not on Fox News; it's on Fox Nation.
1: It's only in the thing they're trying to make more successful. Yeah, Fox it's News. not.
0: It's not right. over here on Fox News. It's just on Fox Nation. And I think this is also reflective of what we're talking about with the election coverage. No, the, the, the lack of control and the lack of standards and the lack of that stuff and the degree to which these anchors apparently do whatever they want to do all the time is is pretty apparent.
1: Well, it was also interesting to me that they're super cautious in calling the election because of what happened when you were there in November. But so on the one hand, caution. On the other hand, like, say whatever the hell you want on this special. And I, I did find it sort of funny on this special. I. Earlier in the episode, they say or Tucker says that Black Lives Matter and the violence and mayhem that law enforcement allowed to become a part of the Black Lives Matter protests were part of convincing the right wing that they could riot and get away with it. At the same time, he's like, oh, it actually was a setup and it was federally. That's that's like the guy.
0: That's like the guy at Breitbart who wrote that. They're trying to the, the reason that they're f- trying to force people to get vaccinated is so that they can alarm Trump voters who will then die. And that it's a secret plot. It's a secret plot by the left to kill Trump supporters by telling them to get vaccinated. I'm like, hmm, I want whatever strain I want. I want to find out which dispensary you're using in D.C. because obviously the Chiba is very sweet uh, where you're going. Chris. Uh, oh, no. the But see. But what? The CNN.
1: I was going to say. Oh, so you pointed out the Columbia Journalism Review a, has a, a very interesting piece about the clips that CNN posts online. A
0: great piece from Ariana uh, Picari for. We used
1: to be a booker at NBC at
0: Yep. And uh, just a good straight sometimes it's it's good just to observe the uh, to remember that the we are fish and what we swim in is water. She went through and she compared CNN TV content to CNN online content during a 24-hour period on October 26th and 27th and she looked at the CNN YouTube channel versus what they were putting on the air and what she found was what the stuff that was posted online was much more
1: she found gambling taking place in this establishment right
0: <laughs> exactly that uh, here I'll, I'll quote her That uh, seven of those 13 clips, such as Haberman on Trump letter, he doesn't care if he seems desperate, and GOP senators uh, erupted garland and heated hearing, were, in my judgment, more polarizing or based on conflict than informative. By comparison, what was on air was far more expansive and informative outside of the primetime. that's
1: like really sad when you're saying that about CNN.
0: During the 24-hour period. the Splitting hairs here. During the, during the 24-hour period, the network aired more than 170 segments spanning at least 45 different topics. What works online is division, is anger, is separation, is isolation, is hatred, is all that stuff because you're – Talking to super users, you and what you want are the click, click, click. The same reason that Fox is putting Tucker Carlson, bananas, false flag stuff on Fox Nation is the same reason that uh, CNN yeah. is tilting to the radical in its online post versus its on air post. Because what you need are addicted users. You can't. It's not enough to have people who are like, "Yeah, I had the TV on, right? I had the TV on." This is. I need you to go there. I need you to pay me four dollars. I need you to be addicted.
1: And I did that to watch the special. And I'm it, one of those suckers.
0: Again, I used to have a daily show on Fox Nation, and I did it with my then producer Brianna McClellan. Shout out, Brie! But, and it was fun. It was a pleasant, cheerful show. And Fox Nation, actually, for quite a while, was pleasant and cheerful. It was like uh, ride to work with Abby Hornacek, and it was Brian Kilmeade takes you to American All right, history you've places. Lost me. You've no, lost no, no, no. And now it's now it's now 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 it's taken a dark turn.
1: In other media news, Chris, Politico employ- employees have unionized. They are now part of the Penn Guild. Uh, big announcement. They all changed their Twitter avatars. I was laughing, I thinking, you know, you know they're serious when there's like a joint changing
0: of Twitter avatars here. Oh, they, um, they all, they're unified? Yeah,
1: they put, like, the same Twitter a- avatar of the guild. The thing I found interesting about this is that the drive for unionization, as far as, you know, folks I've talked to over there, it's really driven by editorial differences with the management.
0: Not about... First,
1: it. it's not about, like, I mean, they they say it's about fair compensation and da da da. But like Politico already pays better than its competitors. So there was the brouhaha over Ben Shapiro guest writing playbook that started it. But then the German company Axel Springer acquired Politico, and they are a pro-Israel. Uh, they're a German company, but they say in their mission statement that they are pro-Israel. They've gotten heat from their German employees for flying the Israeli flag outside. So there's, as you, as one can imagine, there's a lot of upset inside Politico that they just cannot abide uh, having. So you th- you think this
0: is you think this is wokeism? You think this is uh, the more of that than it is Workers of the World Unite?
1: I think I am w- not sure I'd call it wokeism. I but or, w- yes, I, yeah. I think it. I think it's driven by editorial differences with management, not by actual working conditions.
0: Well, that should just work out great. They can, well, maybe maybe they can bring in Felicia Sanmez to advise them <laughs> on how best to terrorize your manager. Yeah, while keeping your job. <laughs> while keeping your job.
1: <laughs> um, speaking of Politico, I had like one nit to pick with them, which was in one of their newsletters this week. They and I thought I thought it was a good example of the way that the media furthers a narrative, even if the facts don't really fit. So their, so their headline on the Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger's decision to retire, he's an anti-Trump Republican, voted for impeachment. So he's not running again. And they their headline is the GOP purge continues. And I struck me as bizarre because the reason he's retiring is because of redistricting. No,
0: he couldn't. Well, I, I doubt he could have won his own primary.
1: Well, who knows? But turns out he'll be in a different primary where he was redistricted into – into now shares a district with a more pro-Trump member. So while well, it's true that, OK, yes, the pro-Trump member is more likely to win in a primary, I mean, he's stepping down. Nobody purged him. He is deciding not to run again.
0: He is in the same place with uh, a bunch of Republicans, Rob Portman.
1: I think Portman would have won again.
0: Uh, I mean th- – so I think Portman and Blunt might have won again. They might have won again, but boy, it would have been ugly. The What's his name? The lunatic uh, who used to be the governor of Missouri that was going to... Brighton's. Come, yeah, the, 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 that guy was coming for Blunt, and I'm sure J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel would have had...
1: I don't think J.D. Vance would have primaried Portman.
0: Well, somebody would have. Yeah. And jo- Josh Mandel, who would eat a booger on live television to have people look at him, would have run against Rob Portman. And for... so. Uh, The question is, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? And in some cases, yeah, I might win, but it would be such a hideous path to have to walk. I know plenty of members of Congress in both chambers who the thought of having to run in primaries these days in this Republican Party is too terrible to think of. And there are Democrats who feel the same way. But the idea of, you know, where you have radical kooks who are holding you hostage— it's exhausting. So I think Kinzinger would have been out one way or the other. I think he's in the Tony Gonzalez zone on this, which is this was, the, you know, the big test is going to be Liz Cheney. Can li- if Liz? I
1: agree. My, hope, my point just being, I don't disagree with anything you just said. It's not a purge.
0: His redistricting was not a purge. But there is a purge that is taking place.
1: I, it's a self-purge.
0: But when you have the members of the House Republican Conference who are like, "We must,"
1: it's the voters doing the purging. But
0: when, but there's also members of the House Republican Conference who want Kinsinger and Cheney kicked out of. They want them stripped. They want them kicked out of the conference. They want. They want Different. sanctions for this. That, that's people.
1: not what this. No, no, called. no. I agree. I agree. I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: back in agreement.
1: Fi- final item. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now this is kind of uh this could have been th- uh, this could have been my obsession because it is a question that I wrestle with at the dispatch. I don't uh,
1: wrestle with this at all.
0: Well, I well, I understand the desire. Mm-hmm. So, the first of all, don't read the comments. Never tweet. Like these are the the waltian rules. Never tweet and don't read the comments because this is something that you took time to write. This is something that you took time to craft. This is something that you thought about. And you're going to not feel good if you go on because somebody's like, yeah, whatever, you're a fat head. I don't care about what you think. Arizona. And you're like, oh, that doesn't, that didn't help me. That didn't help my conversation. Now, at the Dispatch, it is a curated space because only members can comment and trying to create that community was something that so
1: th- it's like annoying hyper users who
0: great great well anyway so uh at the pointer institute uh, there's an interesting piece comments which are terrible maybe are good and maybe we should start reading them again yep. and maybe we should get back into the comments i just think that bad speech drives out good speech And that while there's an argument to be made for members only or whatever in that regard, I just think comment sections are are bad generally.
1: I hate comment section for the same reason that I don't like Twitter. It's because people people with too much time on their hands who have the time to go do this can hide behind anonymity to do things they would never do under their own name. And frankly, if somebody has enough time to go write comments beneath an article— I you know, their opinion probably isn't that
0: valuable. Here's here's a quote from the piece. At the Des Moines register, uh, that person and this is talking about who somebody has to do it, right? You actually have, like, have to have a person who monitors the comment section and does the work. So this Usually rep-
1: it's a guy in India somewhere who's scanning for like, you know,
0: yeah. first words. So at the Des Moines register, uh that person is Brian Smith. While he recognizes the value of having a designated comment section champion, he also sees the detrimental mental health effects of of concentrating that work on one person. I (laughs) love that. That's awesome. Quote, if Uh, it is one person's full job and they spend 40 hours a week in the comment section, they are going to get burned out and that's not productive for anyone, he said. I say that as someone who does the overwhelming majority of the commenting work on our site. So I want to say to you, to Brian Smith, my heart is with you, brother. That is not a fun place to hang out. That is great. It's like mopping like, out a peach. Well,
1: on show. the one hand, they get to say what they want. On the other hand, this guy's going nuts. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> it is now time for our obsessions, and we have complimentary, complimentary
0: obsessions. obsessions. Exactly, wonderful peaches and cream. Chris
1: normally goes first, but. This time it worked better with me going first. Uh, Better lead in for Chris, which is what this is all about. Uh, Okay. So I loved this New York Times story. Uh, The the headline, and I want to make sure I get it right. Headline, BIPOC or POC? Equity or equality? The debate over language on the left. Is it biracial? Indigenous? Oh, black, indigenous. The
0: the younger people in the room are like making terrified faces.
1: Our producers know exactly (laughs) what these things stand for. So Pac is just person of color. Right. So the Times writes, unsurprisingly, the language itself has become contested, especially by, and I bolded this, conservatives who have leveraged discomfort with the new vocabulary to energize their base of white voters, referring to it as woke speak. One conservative think tank circulated a list of words, including microaggressions and Black Lives Matter, that it said could alert parents that what has been labeled critical race theory is being taught in their children's school. But the upshot of the article is about how confusing it is to people that first it was Latino and Latina as opposed to Hispanics. Latinx, Latinx. And now it's Latinx and whatever. The proliferation of this, I, I loved it because it really is something that's happening in our culture. People really are confused by it. What I, what I was, what I thought they overlooked, is that wokeism and these sorts of words are an entirely, almost entirely, a phenomenon of the privileged white elite. So this is a right. very, and I, I'm like very, very white. You're a white lady. I am a white lady, and uh, but you know, I don't use any of, obviously, don't use any of these like terms. But at least have some self-awareness that this is what it is. And I really liked – Barry Weiss just did a podcast with a guy who I've been following for maybe six months now. His name is Rob Henderson. He's a graduate student at Cambridge, has a really interesting newsletter. You guys should sign up. But he talked – he he coined a term called luxury beliefs, mm. which are things that um are usually detrimental to society as a whole but are not detrimental to the 1%. And this sort of language is these like things are a luxury belief, such as that merit doesn't matter. You can't tell someone that working hard is important because of all this systemic oppression. And he points out he's someone who was raised in the foster care system that these are bad things to tell underprivileged people.
0: Yes. Um, Uh, This is like when uh, people talk about uh, this was at the African-American History Museum where it was like the things of whiteness. And this is what whiteness is like. And one of the things that whiteness was punctuality. punctuality. You're like, actually, that's a hallmark of employed people. Employed people tend to be punctual also.
1: And uh, we the the Beacon did a story this week on a diversity training that was conducted for the Yale Law Journal where they said deadlines are. Uh, product
0: of white supremacy. <laughs>
1: and it was hilarious because the feedback was like, well, a lot of what this person said contradicts directly what we here at the Yale Law Journal do, uh, which is, you know, turn bet- things in on time. We
0: we better just, you know, not have deadlines anymore and f- bring it in whenever you want. Just drop, drop it by or don't or whatever.
1: <laughs> All right. Up for your obsession now. I'm going to link the New York Times piece up in our notes.
0: So – I we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about this Substack from Jeff Maurer, which is I might be wrong, and this feeds into it. But there is also the phenomenon around. It's good.
1: I so I don't know who this person is. He's a former I writer for it.
0: John Oliver. Okay,
1: so yes, tell us.
0: But anyway, he had a great piece ahead of the Virginia election. Everyone hates the educated left.
1: So it's uh, his Substack.
0: It's his Substack, but it also is of a piece with David Shore. A lot of the the so David Shore is the guy who got. Got fired at the DNC. He was a data guy who got fired. No, no, he
1: was fired from Civis Analytics, the like Dem data firm.
0: But I, but okay, there was a contract or whatever. But anyway,
1: the only person for whom cancellation has made, you know, been a very good career. A
0: lot of people have got, have done, have benefited off of a a good cancel, getting canceled the right way. They're a good. Can no get it getting canceled getting canceled the right way can be very can be very helpful if it adds to your credibility. I would argue, for example, what happened to Barry Weiss.
1: Yes, uh, I agree with that. She was not really, well, but
0: she was she there
1: effectively canceled. She was it.
0: the mob. The mob came for her. I would say that Kevin Williamson is held in higher esteem now as a result of the, what the what the cowards at the Atlantic did to him, and 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 there there are probably some other examples. But here it is: the media. Understanding about so David Shore got fired for a tweet that w- pointed out an obvious fact that when racial unrest when riots take place Republicans do better in the following elections and they pointed it out <clears throat> during that it the
1: suggestion was that peaceful protests might be more effective
0: yes and that during the George Floyd during the if summer, you're a
1: partisan Democrat. But he was citing he was citing a study no, and the study was by a black guy, right? He
0: was just sharing he was just sharing data that made the obvious point that Democrats were going to do worse when Republicans could take the law and order mantle and hit them over the head with it. And he pointed this out like, "Hey guys, just so you know,s uh, this will while we are exper- while we are spending a lot of time talking about peaceful protests are important and, and light and and accusing Republicans of." Bad thing. Well, it was
1: the same gaslighting. It was like the police buildings burning behind you, but saying, This is all peaceful. peaceful. And I'm sorry, but like, this doesn't freaking work.
0: Most, the mostly peaceful protests. The, the, so Shore gets canned. And then, as time goes by, Democrats go, Some Democrats go, Wait a minute, that guy is right. And then he writes this piece and he gets all these interviews as people talk to him about his identification of a phenomenon that that goes hand in glove with your obsession, which is how liberal young—the the people who have—what what did you call them? Luxury opinions?
1: Uh, luxury beliefs.
0: Luxury beliefs. That the people who hold these luxury beliefs, sometimes children of privilege, often vary from, from wealthy families, but certainly people of who are overeducated and underexperienced dominate the decision-making space of— on the democratic left and consequently they talk about the wrong things the virginia election can be understood in part and the results across the country if voters in uh, in minneapolis Rejected the abolished the police department soundly. Not exactly a Republican stronghold.
1: I have to say, I am like kind of disturbed that forty some percent of people in Minneapolis voted to defund the police. But
0: they didn't vote. The the part of the issue there was it was amorphous and it was going to be a Department of Public Safety and not the Department of Police. And it was blah blah blah. blah, blah. You
1: think people really didn't understand? Maybe I don't know. I I, th-
0: I think I think the I think matters were unclear at best. But the point being,
1: it was like all the rich white people who went to vote that we don't.
0: The insistence no
1: crime anyway in my neighborhood.
0: The insistence of well, that's what you. You are you are a Minneapolis, or I'm
1: a, a Saint Paulite.
0: Saint actually. Paulite, but the the reality that Democrats it is belatedly dawning on Democrats that a focus on on divisive issues that are highly popular with woke young elites. Are not popular with the voters who they actually need in places like virginia you need working class middle class black voters in virginia to go out you can't talk to them about when they're paying three dollars and fifty cents a gallon for gas about why it's a climate crisis and that's why we need to do this stuff you can't talk to them about transgenderism as a the, the fight for transgender rights is the same as civil rights you can't talk to them about those issues and and neglect Necessarily, the things that they care about—the bread and butter issues that they care about—bringing prices down, bringing jobs up, ending the pandemic—gotta, you gotta focus on those things. And I have observed, and I, this is a favorable, this is a good thing. More and more outlets are looking at guys like Maurer and looking at Shore and looking at these other people of the left. And we can also put there. There are people who were there before. That would include guys like um, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, there there are a list of men and women of the left who have been now for quite some time saying you're high on your own supply. You have to put the pipe down and you have to think about voters before you think about. I don't really
1: interest. get a sense that there's much pickup for this and that the Glenn Greenwalds and the Matt Taibbi's and the Andrew Sullivan's, those people, they've like, I mean, well, they've different. gone off. They're a little bit different, but they're people who have different ideas yeah. than the herd in the mainstream. And I have seen no indication on the part of mainstream folks that there's like a real interest in bringing the David Shore. The David
0: Shore phenomenon. The discussion around David Shore has been very real. That that is true. That has happened everywhere, and it's it's a it is a obvious point. Uh, but it is one that 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 this is a course correction that's going to take place. And one other thing, I just say to conclude on this. Right now, the conversation on the right is very boring because there's only one conversation. Trump. how, How much Trump? How much Trump do you want? How spicy do you want your Chang sauce? How much Trump do you want your Trump? And they and they endlessly fight with each other on the right about Trump, 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 Trump. And the Republican Party, which used to be the party of ideas that used to have interesting conversations about policy stuff and talk about these things. There's not much going on. it's It is sort of a, a nuclear winter over there. But on the left, there is starting to be some interesting conversation from these different points of view. And I, I think that's I think that's noteworthy,
1: Chris. it is time for your favorite segment of the week. Which is when I have to say something nice, but as usual, I'm going to make you lead by example. So, you're up.
0: Well, this is a very, this is a a, a very hard thing to talk about, but it is an important thing to talk about, and I want to give a shout out to my AEI colleague Mark Perry. We have talked here on multiple occasions about how suicide rates and the discussion of suicide whether it's military suicides or suicides by the trans people or these people how these are often unanchored statistics that are loose in the in the world and obviously one suicide is one suicide too many and suicide is is a is a is a evil thing it's a it's a it's a heartbreaking thing but understanding things in context and we'll put it in the show notes but he talked about suicide rates uh, he he put together a great chart that helps us understand suicide rates and other things in the United States and how things work to anchor these statistics a little bit. And we'll put it in there, but it's, he compares sets of numbers for every 100 girls or women, there are this many boys uh, and men who do this. So for example, for every 100 girls and women who earn an associate's degree, there are 61 men. For every 100 girls who are enrolled in US colleges, there are 75 men or boys. For every woman who, every 100 girls and women who earn a doctor's degree, there are 85 men and so on and so forth. You get, de- but as you move down, of course, for every 100 women who are incarcerated in federal prisons, there are 1,331 men. Homicides, uh, 100 to 717. And then this one. Girls and women aged 15 to 19 who commit suicide, for every 100 of them, there are 293 men. So as we talk about these hard hard facts about what's happening to the men of America, suicide is a big part of that. And I just I want to congratulate and thank Mark Perry for being willing to to dig into this, this hard stuff and help us understand what's going on to men and boys in America, because it ain't great.
1: Mine is much lighter. Yeah,
0: you got to you got to bring us back from that.
1: The New York Post had a wonderful piece on this, the latest climate summit in (laughs) Glasgow. (laughs) The headline was "Outrage after 400 VIP jets converge on climate summit," and. That was like about the extent of my interest in this climate summit, but I I did think that was that was good journalism.
0: Did you find the preposterousness of the climate summit to be particularly preposterous? I didn't. This time?
1: I didn't follow it. I only followed all the jets.
0: But all the cover, but like the coverage was like every twenty minutes there was like more news from the climate. And you're like, does anybody think anything will result of this? Give me a break, weirdos.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. We're linking that too, Chris. That is all the time we have left. If you guys have a story that you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.